Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 7 and 8. The message is entitled, The Blessing of Redemption. The first spiritual blessing that Paul gave to us was the doctrine of election by the Father. In verses uh, 4 through 6, characterized by the proclamation of election in verse 4, the explanation about election in verse 5, and the exaltation for election in verse 6. Again, keep in mind that the Trinity is involved in the whole process of salvation. This is one long sentence from verse 3 to 14. The Father is indicated in 3 to 6, the Son 7 to 12, and the Holy Spirit 13 and 14. And at the end of each verse, 6, 12, and 14, each one of them is praised. And so the whole Trinity is involved. Paul now <clears throat> presents the spiritual blessings by Jesus to further describe the wealth of the believer. Remember chapter 1, 2, and 3 is the wealth of the believer um, by the love of God. So the first blessing revealed to us here by the Son is the doctrine of redemption, which again is characterized by three things. Let me read here verse 7 and 8. He says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. The doctrine of redemption is characterized by the following. First, once again we have the proclamation now of redemption. Secondly, you have the explanation about redemption. You have both of those in verse 7. And then the illumination after redemption in verse 8. And so the proclamation of redemption comes first in the first part of 7. Notice the apostle Paul revealed the transaction for our redemption between the Father and the Son here. Listen to his words. In Him we have redemption. Paul makes his transition from the Father to the Son, building off the phrase, He has made us accepted in the Beloved at the end of verse 6. The phrase in Him points back to the Beloved, Jesus Christ. Notice the right of redemption goes back to the Old Testament law. When Paul is writing this, all they have is the Old Testament. That's what he's talking about, the Scriptures. God redeemed the firstborn, as you know, of man and beast to himself due to the fact that he spared them from the angel of death in Egypt in Exodus 13, 1 and 2. So he took them unto himself. The firstborn were to be the priest of the home. Later, God exchanged them for the firstborn, um, the firstborn that was to be the high priest for the tribe of Levi in the book of Numbers 8, 14 through 19. And he had a census taken and the difference, he bought the rest of them and then he just switched them. Now, we also have the redemption of the land that is Old Testament. The land was not to be sold permanently because the land belonged to God. So a person or one of his relatives could redeem the land and house if it was within a walled city, not the open fields. If not, it would return back to the original owner in the year of Jubilee, in Numbers 25, 23 to 30. So you have the example of Egypt when he redeems the firstborn of male and beast, you have the redemption of the land, and the implication being that the first right of redemption goes to the original owner. He redeems what was his originally, distinct from someone buying something. When you buy something, you buy something that's never been yours. When you redeem something, it says it was previously yours. There was also the provision in the law for a Hebrew who sold himself off to pay a debt, and in fact, he would become a servant. And he could be redeemed by a relative, Leviticus 25, 45, and 49. 
So the Old Testament was full of the law of redemption in many different ways. If you remember, Ruth, the Moabite, was married to Boaz by the right of redemption. He claimed the property of Elimelech, and with that, he claimed the widow also had to raise up seed to them. Jeremiah was accused of going out to Anathoth to redeem a piece of land and accused of being a traitor, falling out to the Babylonians. And they put him in jail. Now, notice Paul stated that the son became the payment or the ransom for us in our place. The word redemption here again has the idea of buying back a slave being set free or released by payment. And it's a compound word. And Colossians 1.14 says the exact same thing that here verse 7 says. The two words are first apple, off, away, or to depart. And lutron, to loosen, literally destroy, dissolve with the redemptive prize or ransom in full for deliverance and liberation. The word is used ten times by Paul, or ten times in the New Testament, seven of them are used by Paul. The interesting thing here is that the article appears in the Greek, the redemption, the only redemption, none other. It's in the present tense. So Paul says, this is unique, this is the only one. There's no other redemption. So he nails it. Notice Jesus, if you remember, told the disciples that he came to be the ransom for sinners. In Matthew 20, verse 8, and Mark 10, 45, you remember, he said, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, lutron, for many. Man is a slave of sin, as you know. Regardless how moral and how ethical you might be, you're a slave to sin. You sin by nature. When you do something good, it's the exception rather than the rule. We have a potential for good because we're creating the image of God, but in our fallen state, our bent is towards evil. The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. Romans 6, 6, and throughout Romans it says that we were slaves of sin before we were born again, and those who aren't born again are still slaves of sin. Now, Jesus bought us from the slave market by giving himself as a ransom for many the Bible tells us. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says you have been bought with a price. In 1 Corinthians 7.23. So Jesus sold himself to take our place. The word bought there in Corinthians is agorazo from agora, the public town square. Where you buy things, the marketplace. Paul tells us Jesus bought us out of that slave market. They would sell men and women as they would sell ox and sheep and a chair. They were just articles. And they would bid them off. Galatians 4, 4 or Galatians 3.13 says, Christ has redeemed us. There's the word ex-agorazo. Now it's not agorazo, but ex out of the marketplace. Redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. And in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, it says, But while when fullness of time had come, God sent forth a son made of a woman under the law to redeem, there's a word again, ex agorazo, out of the slave market, those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. So each one of us were a slave to sin, and Jesus bought us out of the slave market. Again, 
Ex agorazo, ex meaning out, and agora means from the market. So the buying of a slave was always to free him to improve his opportunity. Jesus bought us out of the slave market to give us greater opportunity, to give us freedom from sin that we might be able to live a life far different than we did before. Notice the Apostle Paul revealed the transaction here between the Father and the Son for our redemption, that it was based on His blood. So there was a real transaction. Sometimes people think God just winked at our sin and, you know, He just said, well, let's just forget it. No, He didn't. He didn't tell Adam, you know, let's just forget it. We'll just pretend it never happened. There was real consequences that came to Adam. There was a real promise given about the Messiah to come. He says, through His blood. The token of blood speaks of death, as you know, and a substitute in the place of another. The principle was laid down at the fall as an animal was slayed by God as the substitute for the sin of Adam in Genesis 3.21. And he clothed Adam and Eve with the skins. This was based on the promise of the Messiah to come. The Son of God would redeem all who would trust in that promise. Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. The first mention of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, that God would become flesh. Now, the deliverance of the children of Israel from Egypt, if you remember, follows that same principle. It's based on blood. The blood of the lamb was placed on the doorpost and the lentil, the sign of the cross, as you do that. And the angel of death, when they came by and saw the blood, it leaped over that house and didn't slay the firstborn. But every house that didn't have the blood of the lamb, the firstborn, was slain. Exodus twelve twenty one through 23. The Jews were to tell their children they had literally been bought out of the slave market of Egypt by the Passover lamb sacrifice, a type of Christ, Exodus 12, 13, and 14. They were to remember. That's what the Passover is all about. Their hard life, tears, bitterness, hard labor. Now, the law of Moses and the sacrificial system of the tabernacle equally was based on the atonement of blood. The animal sacrifices, you know, for sin and trespasses atoned for the, by the blood. Now, the word atonement in the Hebrew is kofar. It doesn't mean completely blotted away. It just means a cover. We get the word cover from it. So it was a cover by the blood of the animals, acted in faith of the true and ultimate promise to come, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So every lamb, every sacrifice, every article of the tabernacle was prophetic of Jesus Christ to come. And when people acted upon the system by which God gave, God honored their faith as if it was the Messiah. Because when the Messiah would come, he in fact would pay for all those sacrifices that were atoned by the blood of animals in faith. Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, God says, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. The blood was the token of payment through death. As a substitute. If you lived in the Old Testament and you sinned, then you would have to bring a lamb. You would tie it up to a pole. You would lay your hands on the head of that animal and transfer your sin to that animal. After the priest examined it, there was no blemish, no spot, and it was acceptable. And as you laid your hands on that animal, you would pull the head back and expose the throat, and you, not the priest, would take a knife and cut its throat. 
would squeal, hit the ground, blood all over the place. And you would look down and you would be reminded that that should have been you. That lamb took your place. Sin kills. He became your substitute. And then that blood would be put on the horns of the altar for atonement. And depending on the sacrifice and the offering, it would be filleted and, and followed through certain procedure. Leviticus chapter 1, verse through, uh, chapter 1, all the way to 7, gives you the sacrifice and the law. Now, that's what the Old Testament taught. That's what all these Hebrews knew, as Paul is writing, and even as he's writing to Gentiles, they were kind of familiar, but not altogether. But the New Testament atonement for sin is based on the death and blood of Jesus Christ in our place because they were all prophetic. The Father accepted Jesus as our substitute for the payment of the sins of the world. First uh, John 2, 2 says, He became the propitiation, that which appeased the wrath of God. And not only for our sins, but the whole world, he says. Colossians 1, 20 confirms that and many others. The word through here in our text means the ground or reason by which something is or is not done. So this is the process by which through the means that authenticated a real transaction of redemption. So once again, it wasn't just some mystical thing, some... Um, legend but there was a real transaction that took place and as you know the father poured out his wrath on the son at the cross my god my god why has thou forsaken me because god is holy and jesus became sin for us and for that short time the father could not look upon the son he had to judge the son and there was a real payment made there was a real consequence paid death and the atoning the token for that atonement for that payment for that ransom was the blood of Jesus Christ Isaiah 53:10 says the father poured out his wrath on the son he says yet it pleased the lord to bruise him he has put up put him to grieve when you make your soul an offering for sin he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Prophetic of Christ, 700 years before the crucifixion. Jesus entered with his own blood to the most holy place. Once and for all, we are told, having obtained eternal redemption in Hebrews 9.12 The book of Hebrews is the Leviticus of the New Testament. It interprets the Old Testament Leviticus. All of it's fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. He is everything. The bread, the altar, everything. Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, almost all things were, are purified with blood. And without blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So where there's no blood, there is no forgiveness. Where there's blood, that means there's an atonement for a life. Death is the evidence that. He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Hebrews 9.26 says. What did he say from the cross? It is finished. Now I was just sharing with our, the people in our study Wednesday morning... Uh, as they come, and I was just sharing with the ladies that, ladies, you're, you're a, a walking altar. Every one of you reach an age of maturity where you become a woman, you're able to conceive, and within your uterus, you have eggs. And those eggs have a potential for life. And at the end of every month, your cycle, when that egg is not fertilized, it dies. And how is it atoned? By blood. Then you get to a place where you're no longer 
are able to have children, menopause, there's no more eggs, there's no more blood. But as long as you have eggs and they're not fertilized, they are atoned by blood. How interesting, isn't it? Because that's real potential life. And God covers the life with blood. Have you ever pawned anything in a pawn shop? If you have, you know you have a certain amount of time to redeem it. And then after that time, if you don't redeem it, then it is sold. Now the reason that you are able to redeem it is because it originally belonged to you. And so with God, he's the original owner of you and I, fallen man. And he has paid the price for redemption. But it's up to each one of us as sinners to call upon the Redeemer. <laughs> that we want to be redeemed. He doesn't force himself. And there is a time that once a person crosses a certain line, that time of redemption is over. And God gives a person up. No one knows where that line is. But it certainly is, exists because the Bible warns about it. John the Baptist, remember, said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world in John one twenty nine. Every Jew understood that. They saw blood, sacrifice, hands, cut in the throat, blood on the altar, the horns, atonement. And yet they missed their Messiah. Paul tells us Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The substitute. Peter tells us that we were redeemed not with uh, silver or gold or things of the traditions of our Father, but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Precious blood, sinless. Paul says, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 1 Timothy 2, 6. All. He died for the world. He died for all. But not all the world will be saved. Not all the world will repent. But he died for all. They'll never believe the lie of Calvinism that he died only for a select few. And that wherever the word, word, world, or, 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 um, or elect, that you can substitute that one way or the other. So they substitute in John 3.16 that he died for the world, for the elect only, not so. That's a corruption. He died for the whole world. First John 2.2, 2, I've already given it to you. But not all want to be saved. Not all will repent. But his atonement was for every sinner in the world. John records the worship in heaven. Listen to Revelation 5, 9, and 10. He says, And they sang a song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. For you were slain and have redeemed Agarazzo, us to God by your blood, out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. That's the church in heaven in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation prior to God pouring out his wrath upon this world. So the proclamation of redemption is limited to Jesus, no one else. Not Krishna, not Allah, not a religion, not Mary, not Peter, not the Pope. Only Jesus Christ. He's the Redeemer. Notice secondly then, we get the explanation about the redemption, the rest of seven there. The Apostle Paul declared the efficiency of his redemption and forgiveness of sins. The problem with man is sin, as you know, it is an obstacle and an uh, obstruction to God to have a relationship with man because he's holy. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden in complete fellowship in Genesis 2, as you know. We can't even imagine such a fellowship <laughs> because even though we have the privilege now, we still have sin nature <laughs> and they're still all around us. And then when Adam and Eve sinned, that fellowship was broken. Their eyes were open, realizing they were naked 
in their guilt and shame. They tried to cover themselves with fig leaves in Genesis 3-7. God then sought Adam and Eve out for confession of their sin. And through the shedding of blood, their sins was atoned and forgiven, as we pointed out in Genesis 3.21. Now, the word sins here in our text is not the usual word that is used in the New Testament for sin. The word here, for, or the word for sin, is usually harmashia, literally means to miss the mark. The word appears about 174 times in the New Testament. It is used to describe the natural conduct of a sinner. He misses the mark of perfection, which is the requirement of God for one to be accepted in fellowship. That means that excludes every one of us. Because we all fall short. We all sin. Now, Every human being, being a sinner, then falls short of that glory, the glory of God, Romans 3.23 says. And therefore, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. So by all rights, you and I cannot have fellowship with God. You and I deserve death. But Jesus made a transaction for us. <laughs> this is the miracle. The word sins here means to fall beside or near something. The idea is now more of a lapse or a deviation from the path or uprightness. Kind of like trespass, a willful disregard or violation. This word is found 23 times in the New Testament. And by the way, it is in the plural, trespasses. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, he's going to tell us in chapter 2, verse 1. And then God regenerated us. But our condition prior to being born again was that of sinning. Both sins and trespasses are used for man in this sinful lifestyle throughout the scriptures. Now notice the efficiency of the redemption by Jesus is expressed by one word. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Here is the key to Christianity. Nothing else. Forgiveness. The word comes from the word that means to send one, to send away from oneself, or to pardon or release from past sins and their penalty, the sin and the penalty, complete expiation, complete expulsion, no evidence. The sins and trespasses that a believer commits in his or her life before Christ are absolutely as if they never have been committed. This is difficult for us to understand because we still have memory. Hard to believe that a God who's all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, can forget. But he doesn't do it because he has weaknesses. He does it because he chooses to do so. The guilt, the shame, the regret are to be cast down and not allowed to be a weight of condemnation by their own doing or that of others. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. Who walk after the spirit, not after the flesh. So effective is the forgiveness of our sins and trespasses that we are called 
adopted sons and daughters, accepted in the beloved already in verse 5 and verse 6. The absolute truth of complete obliteration of our past sins is beautifully illustrated by the various visual metaphors that are given in Scripture. Let me give you some of them. God has cast our sins as far as the east from the west, Psalm 103, 12. He didn't say north and south, thank God. God has buried them in the depths of the sea, Micah 7, 19. And as one has put it, he put a sign there, no fishing. Now, when those scriptures were written, no man could ever reach the depths of the sea. No man would ever be able to hold his breath long enough to reach the bottom of the sea. And that's the idea behind it. It has no relationship that now we have submarines and we can go to the bottom. That doesn't mean anything. That's not what it's talking about. God remembers our sins no more. Jeremiah 31, 34. Another one. God has cast all our sins. Listen. Behind his back. Isaiah 38, 17. When you go home, you have your wife or husband put a piece of tape back here between your shoulder blades. Because that's what it means. And then try to see if you can see it. Every one of these metaphors are very, very specific. Listen to Romans 3, 25 through 26. Whom God set forth as a propitiation force by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Passed over the sins previously committed. Titus puts it this way. Who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us. From every lawless deed. And purify for himself. His own peculiar people. Zealous for good works. Titus 2.14. In whom we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1.14, the parallel passage. Very specific details about our sins when we put our trust in Jesus Christ. Now, notice the Apostle Paul declared the sufficiency of his redemption, of his redemptive forgiveness here. According to the riches of his grace. We looked at the efficiency. Now here's the sufficiency. According to the riches of His grace. The amount of sin able to be forgiven and have been forgiven is in proportion to God's unmerited favor, the grace of God. Regardless of the amount of lies you told before Christ. Regardless of the amount of stealing you committed before Christ. Regardless of the amount of fornication or adultery committed before Christ. Regardless of the number of people you hurt or damaged before Christ. And you can keep the list going. The key is before Christ. That's what he's talking about. He has cleansed our sins. I remember them. He does not. So I'm supposed to put on the mind of Christ. I'm supposed to do one thing. Forgetting those things that are behind. And reaching forward to the things that are ahead. I'm to put on the armor of God. I'm to bring my thoughts into captivity. I'm to do good warfare. And having done all to stand, 
and of standing. Wow. The grace of God is immutable, as you know. It neither increases or decreases. Therefore, it has inexhaustible riches, abounding wealth. Is what it says here. And we looked at the abounding grace last time in detail. It's great. It's all abundant. It's all sufficient. It's glorious. It's rich. It's undeserved for sinners. And it's manifold. The scriptures tell us. There is only one sin God will not forgive. The rejection or denial of Jesus as the Savior and Redeemer of the world. It's a sin against love. It's a sin against the atonement of Christ. To cover your sin. Revelation 5.12 says, Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, and wisdom, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. A man named um, John Oglethorpe, in talking to John Wesley, once made the comment, I never forgive. Mr. Wesley wisely replied, then, sir, I hope you never sin. I think the greatest test in our life, and my life, is forgiveness. There's a lot of things we can get by. But forgiveness is the greatest test of my life. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think we're all the same. We seem to be more gracious with ourselves than with others. It's part of our fallen nature. We have to fight, strive, and agonize to be more like Christ. The world mocks at sin or the fact that sin separates us from God, but God is very clear and serious about sin. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. He's talking to Christians, at least from the Old Testament sense. <laughs> Believers. Isaiah 59, 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. So that he will not hear. There's no two stronger scriptures to communicate clearly that sin will interrupt my fellowship with God. He can't hear me. He won't hear me until I get right. The cry of David for forgiveness bears the pain of his sin as well as the longing. For forgiveness. Listen carefully. His confession in Psalm 51, 1 through 4, he says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. The sin with Bathsheba. Ever before him, your God forgave him. God never remembered it or mentioned it ever again, but David remembered it. And he had to not remember it. He had to work at not remembering it. In the same Psalm, verse 7 through 13, no, no, he moves to his petition. Listen, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me 
and now shall be whiter than snow. Why whiter than snow? Because every snowflake has a dirty heart. It is wrapped around a speck of dust. When God cleanses you, He makes you whiter than snow. Wow. Make me hear joy and gladness. That the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my, trans my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. The pain, the regret, the guilt, the chastening, the crying to God. Believing God's faithfulness and His goodness. Hmm. The need of forgiveness among us is so vital that if we are not willing to forgive, it will hinder our relationship with God and destroy our relationship with people. We are to forgive one another repeatedly, taking the request for forgiveness as genuine and sincere. In Matthew eighteen fifteen through 20, if a brother or sister sins uh, against you, you are the one responsible to go and confront them by one, you, then by two, so they don't listen, then by three, if they don't listen, then the church. But you're to go yourself, the innocent party, to the one that's guilty, and you try to make it right, and if they acknowledge their error, and you clear it up, you've gained a brother, no one else knows about it except you and them, so it's easy to find out who has the big mouth. If he doesn't listen to you, you go by twos. Now you've got three people, it's easy to find out who has the big mouth. And then you go by threes and, the, and him, that's four. It's still easy to find out who has the big mouth. And then the last resort is the church, which usually is with some elders, and still it's limited to few that we can find out who has the big mouth. What is the whole point of Matthew 18? The least amount of people know about other sin, the better off the church will be. Resolve it. Simple. People don't do Matthew 18 today. That's why the church is all messed up. That's why relationships are all messed up. Peter, hearing this in Matthew 18, 21 and 22, came to him and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus said, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven, 490 times. <laughs> the implication is not that once you hit 491, your, your responsibility is over. What he's saying is that you're to receive that person in genuine sincerity and take him at his word, and you will know in time if it's sincere or not, right? Time is the test of all things. The solution to resentment and bitterness is forgiveness, depending on Christ. Always remembering how much He has forgiven me. Ephesians four thirty-one to thirty-two says, "Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you, with all malice." That's the motive behind it—to hurt. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Here's a kicker. Just as God in Christ forgave you. That's where my head hangs down. Because it's easy to forget that or to think that somehow when God forgave my sin, it wasn't as bad as yours is. It's just the way we are. 
And if you don't have problem with forgiveness, then please come and give me some counsel. That is probably the hardest thing for any of us. Apart from Christ, we cannot do it. You just can't do it. Colossians 3, 13 through 14 says, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on agape, which is the bond of perfection. That's how you do it. By yielding to agape love. By forgetting those things that are behind. By pressing forward. By bringing your thoughts into captivity. By being filled by, with His Spirit and His love. The gospel message that we have, we are to never alter. Because it is the gospel of forgiveness. That God through repentance will forgive regenerate and transform a sinner so they can live a life no longer dominated by sin as they depend and abide on Jesus Christ. That's why it's imperative that we don't mess with the gospel, that we preach repentance, that we preach against sin, that we go verse by verse, we go chapter by chapter, and we always, always turn the teaching of God's word to address the non-believer. Because it's the gospel of forgiveness. You know how many people are out of their mind tonight? Because they are driven by all the guilt and shame of all that they've done. I guarantee you that if the majority of the people that are on meds in some of these hospitals due to sin, the things that they've done, that if they could believe and know that they could be forgiven, they could walk out sane. It's that guilt, it's that shame, it's that sin that destroys our lives. Listen to our message. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. That's the ministry you and I have. To be able to share the gospel of forgiveness with other people. People like you, better than you, worse than you. <laughs> John twenty twenty three. Jesus says, whoever sins, you remit the remit. Whoever sins, retain the retain. We have the authority to say, if you repent, your sins are forgiven. And if they don't repent, we have the authority to say, your sins are retained in you. You are still in the wrath of God. Wow. That's not for a Catholic priest. That's for every one of us. <laughs> Based on repentance or the lack thereof. God told Peter in Acts 11, 9, where God is cleansed, you must not call common. Wow. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no longer. Therefore, if any was in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Did you connect the beginning and the end? We regard no one according to the flesh. And then even includes Christ. Christ is glorified. He's not in the flesh anymore. Not in the human body. The way it was before. So we don't regard anybody the way we used to know them in their past life. We see them in their new life. A new creation. All things pass away. Everything becomes new. There's the key to Christianity. There's the test of Christianity. You need to go no further. This will always challenge our Christianity. The explanation about redemption is that we are blameless before Jesus. Wow. Notice thirdly, verse 8, the illumination after redemption. 
The Apostle Paul revealed that the very same grace that saved us is able to enable us to live the Christian life. Listen to his words. Which he made to abound towards us. The entire statement refers back to the riches of his grace in verse 7. The entire seventh verse is speaking about Jesus, not the Father. In him, through his blood, his grace. The eighth verse is no different. It refers to Jesus. He made, and the entire section is speaking of Jesus from 7 to 12. The same grace that saved us has the sufficient capacity to work on our behalf. The phrase made to abound means to exceed a fixed number of measure. The idea being that not only is it all sufficient, but more than sufficient to meet the need, overflowing would be a good word. We have more than enough grace for all of our life. More than enough. The implication being that if and when there is a deficiency, it is not the fault or failure on the part of Jesus, but me, the saint, who's acting like an ain't. Hmm. The intended individual cannot be missed towards us. The one who is blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, as verse 3 says, you and I. The one chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, verse 4. The one predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, verse 5. The note is the Apostle Paul revealed the specific area that Jesus has superabundantly supplied for our lives in all wisdom and prudence. The ability of divine insight for the true nature of things. The word wisdom, Sophia, for the Greeks meant cleverness and skill in craft and art, in common life. Sound judgment, literally. This wisdom is the best godly decision and deliberation or conclusion a person makes looking to Christ with the information, the facts that they possess. As they're Christians, they're living in Christ. They're looking and examining everything to the Word of God. This abounding wisdom is qualified by the word all. Each any, every kind of wisdom has been provided for us as believers to live out the redeemed life. The wisdom to raise children, the wisdom to be married, the wisdom to do the things we have to between people and whatever decisions we make. And then notice the ability to live out practical wisdom. The word prudence means the ability to conduct ourselves wisely regarding our redeemed life. So it has more with actions and the conduct, where the wisdom is the assessment intellectually and understanding what we must do. But it has to, it has to go from our, from our brain to our feet, to our life. The ability to discern the proper action or conduct as a Christian who has been redeemed. John declared that the grace and truth came by Jesus Christ in John 1.17. Paul's prayer is going to be in chapter 1, verse 15 through 19 of that very petition that he's talking about here. He petitions there. And 15 says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you always in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the same, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Wow. We're to pray for that always, every day. The ability to see and understand spiritual truth is the result of our new birth. Just like turning on the light allows you to see things clearly in a room. The same thing. Often we lean to our own understanding. We depend on other things and other people instead of Christ. We think we've lived long enough. We think we have enough experience that experience is all we need. Experience cannot be substituted, but experience without Christ only makes you a dumber sinner because you'll repeat it again. There are practical things we are to do to ensure the needed wisdom and prudence for our redeemed lives. Let me give you some of them. Ephesians five seventeen through 20. He says, therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts of the Lord, giving thanks always and all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a good start. That means you won't be in control. Colossians 3.16 Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making grace in your heart to the Lord. So fill with the word, fill with the spirit. And Philippians 2, 5 through 7, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't think it to be robbery with God, equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and becoming the likeness of man. The mind of Christ, a servant, humility. Fill with the word, fill with the spirit, mind of Christ, humility. If we're going to acquire knowledge and information for our redeemed life, it must come through Christ's wisdom and prudence. Listen to uh, the scriptures in Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. How much better to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Proverbs sixteen sixteen. The wisdom, for wisdom is the defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Ecclesiastes seven twelve. James 1, 5 through 6. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like the waste of the sea, driven, tossed by the wind. So we believe God will give as we wait upon him, as we seek him. Colossians 2, 3 puts the bullseye on where you can get this wisdom. Listen carefully. He says, In Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 3. No one else. The illumination after redemption is by being one with Jesus. You can't get away from it. And so, the first blessing revealed regarding the Son is the doctrine of redemption, which is characterized by the proclamation of redemption that it's limited to Jesus. The explanation about redemption is we are blameless before Jesus. And the illumination after redemption is by being one with Jesus. That's what the church is all about, ladies and gentlemen. That's what fellowship is all about. That's why we study the Word of God. That's why we encourage one another to keep our accounts short. 
That's why we encourage, we reprove, we confront, we exhort one another. <laughs> While it is day and there is time, lest we drift away and forget those things that have been taught to us and we get to a place that we think that we know better or worse yet, that we don't need them any longer. God help us. What a blessed redemption we have. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love. Pray you deal with us, Lord, and we thank you for your grace. And we do pray you would continue to pour out your spirit upon us as we yield to you, Lord. And Lord, I pray for every person here that, Lord, we would just be open to you and help us in our shortcomings and that we go to you and keep our accounts short, that we just uh, allow you to work in us, Lord, in a greater way. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins, to be forgiven for all that weight of sin that's on your life, for all that you've ever committed against the Lord. He wants to forgive you. Maybe you're over the Internet. You can ask Christ right in your heart right now, right where you sit. It's a prayer of repentance, acknowledging your sinfulness, your need of Christ, and that he can forgive you. If you believe that, then that's a miracle by the Holy Spirit to turn on the light and bring conviction and illumination to you now. And so if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to him. You can repeat it right where you sit. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.